0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Two years ago, uh, Pastor John and I were, were talking about different sermon series that would be fruitful, that would be helpful for us as a church family. And the Book of Acts came up. We've wanted for a long time to do the Book of Acts. Uh, for a few reasons, most of which, is, as I recall, had to do with breaking down a really long book into uh, not taking like five years to, to do it. Uh, we decided that the spring of 2021 was going to be a good moment for us to delve into at least the first half of the Book of Acts. Now, mind you, this is before, you know, sounds of the old world, right? Any, anyone knew anything of COVID-19, uh, pandemic, life, anything like that. This was long before people had lost loved ones and jobs, nearly a year now of regular social interactions, which in turn, as some of you know well and have experienced in your own life and the lives of people you love, has brought spikes in addictions and abuse and anxiety and depression, an overall sense maybe of weariness, or maybe for others just a kind of a generic, lethargic, malaise in life. But in the providence of God, uh, this is the state of our region, the state of our world, and even more significantly, the state of our own souls as we begin the book of Acts. And one of my favorite things about the role I have as a pastor is when I get surprised by God, uh, where God orchestrates something and shows up in a person's life or uses an interaction or a sermon or even a sermon series calendar in ways that we had no thought, no concept for uh, when we first were putting it together. The book of Acts is a book about the Spirit of God empowering Jesus' church to advance God's mission. And I'm going to say that a lot over the course of the morning, so if you want to write it down, it's going to be kind of a theme of our entire series. But the Acts is a book about the Spirit of God empowering Jesus' church to advance God's mission. Tracing the growth of the early church through the ministry of the apostles, it's traditionally been referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. You might even see that title printed in in your Bible. But though the apostles feature prominently in this book, like all of Scripture, this is a book about the work and the worth of God. It's a book about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a book about Jesus' church. It's a book about God's mission. So the opportunity before us in the weeks ahead is that we might see with fresh eyes the story that you and I have been swept up into. As we, God willing, will soon emerge from what is almost now a year of pandemic life, and will emerge in a region filled with people who are desperate for meaning and purpose and relationships, not to mention all kinds of practical help, If there's a book in the Bible that's going to compel us to be present and faithful and bold as God's people in this moment, in this time and place, it's this book. It's this book. This book is about the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. This book is about the worth of sacrificing and suffering for Jesus' name. This book is about the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that carries the church beyond anything attainable by human effort. So may it rekindle your zeal. May it recalibrate your priorities. May it call all of us for the first time or one more time to the incredible joy, to the opportunity, to the responsibility of being the church bought and sent and sustained by Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and then we'll delve into the book of Acts. If you want to flip there, page 909 is where you'll find today's text, but let me pray for us. God, our Father, we ask now in these precious moments that we have together that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read, that as your word is proclaimed, we might hear what you are saying to us today, because surely you speak peace to your people. So may your peace propel us to advance your mission in this world, and we pray this through the name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. It's not Judas Iscariot, it's a different Judas. Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And he prayed, and they prayed, and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. With our time this morning, as we kick off this series, we're going to look at this first chapter of Acts in three parts. Preparation, calling, and preparation. Preparation. So preparation, the the backdrop of Acts and the work of the triune God, which sets everything up that we're going to read through in this book in the weeks and months to come. Calling, where the apostles receive their calling and their commissioning from the risen Jesus. And then preparation, again, what the apostles do until Pentecost. So first, preparation. Uh, The book of Acts was written sometime around 62 AD. Picking up where the Gospel of Luke leaves off, It recounts the spread of the gospel around the first century Mediterranean world in the 30 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Luke and Acts are actually a a two-volume set from the same author. A physician turned historian slash evangelist slash theologian named Luke. Now Luke was not himself an apostle, nor was he a first-hand witness of Jesus during his earthly ministry. But rather, Luke was the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He is the only Gentile. He is the only non-Jewish contributor to the New Testament. And as we read this book, that adds a lot to Luke's recounting of Gentiles being included in the church and among the covenant people of God. It's not just for Luke, doctrine, or theory. It's his own life. It's his own salvation that he is writing about when Gentiles are included in the church. Luke is no minor contributor to the New Testament either. This two-volume set comprises roughly a quarter of the entire New Testament. And as he seeks to both inform as a historian and to persuade as an evangelist, Luke shows us this incredible continuity from Israel to Jesus, from Jesus to the church, and then from the church to the world, all through the powerful movement of God the Holy Spirit. The first five verses here in the book of Acts give us the backdrop, and they remind us that this is not at all the beginning of the story. So much has gone before this moment. This is but the next chapter in God's ongoing work, work that God has prepared from before the foundation of the world. So we read, for example, in verse 4, Acts is the continued fulfillment of the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. From the moment Adam and Eve's rebellion plunged the world into sin, God promised to redeem all of it. And as that took shape then through Noah, through Abraham, through Israel through Moses, through the prophets and the priests and the kings, it all anticipated the Messiah, an anointed one who would come and would rescue and would reconcile God's people. At the end of Luke's gospel, the first volume of this two-volume set, in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and in what has to be the most amazing Bible lesson of all time ever recorded, Jesus opens up the Old Testament and he shows his disciples how all of it points to himself. As Luke then reminds us here in the beginning of Acts, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, verse 3. He chose apostles, verse 2. And he promised, verse 5, that after his work on earth was done, he would send his followers the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would empower them to do the same works. And even as we read to get together, today together in our words of encouragement, even greater works than he himself had done. In these opening verses, Luke then also gives us the account of Jesus' ascension, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. And that is perhaps the most neglected aspect of Jesus' saving work. So we talk a lot, at least in our circles and our tribes, we talk a lot about the incarnation. And the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and rightfully so, we don't talk near as much about the ascension, do we? But it's just as integral to his saving work. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in Ephesians 4 that Jesus ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. So that he might actually continue the work that he began, bringing all rebellious powers under his authority, under subjection to him, and then turn them back over to the Father. So without the ascension, there is no fulfillment. Without the ascension, there's also no intercession. There's no Jesus at the right hand of the Father pleading the merits of his finished work for those who put their faith in him. And here in Acts, watching Jesus ascend into heaven gives the apostles a kind of closure. It's preparation for them, it gives them a kind of closure. Jesus will still be with them to the end of the age, as he promised, but not in the same way. And think about this without this moment, without this moment, they would have kept on looking for resurrection appearances of Jesus, where during those 40 days he went in and out uh, from among them. They would have kept looking for those appearances when instead they were meant to receive the Holy Spirit and then be sent out in the Spirit's power. So with Luke, grow in your appreciation for Jesus' ascension. Without it, without it, there is no sending of the Spirit, which means there's no church, which means there's no worldwide spread of the gospel, which means you and I and billions more are without hope and without God in the world. That's how important the ascension is to the saving work of Jesus. All of this, encapsulated here in just these few verses at the start of Acts, is preparation. It's the, it's the rearview mirror vantage point of God's work which was always building to, which was always preparing for the explosive and global spread of the gospel. It reminded me this week, there's an episode of The Office where Toby is about to tell a story and he says, I would start at the beginning but I think I need to go farther back. The beginning of Acts, these first verses in Acts are kind of like Luke's version of what Toby said there. I would start at the beginning, but I think I need to go farther back than that. He says here, remember the first book, the gospel that I wrote. Remember that that gospel actually includes a genealogy which goes all the way back to Adam. And all of that then goes back to the eternal promises of God. Knowing that sin would ruin the perfect world he made, God was committed to redeem it. And Acts is but the next chapter in that. If that's the backdrop then, if that's the rearview mirror of God's preparation, then second, let's look at calling, calling of the apostles. Acts 1.8, pretty well-known verse in this book. If you know one verse even in the entire book of Acts, it's probably this one. It is Luke's recounting of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the calling that Jesus gives his apostles to make disciples of all nations. Our scripture reading today was the other famous Great Commission passage, which is Matthew 28. But as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, Luke loves the word witnesses. He loves to use the word witnesses. The apostles are witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, he says at the end of chapter 1. And Jesus here calls his apostles, his disciples, to be witnesses to the end of the earth. In context, though, uh, Acts 1.8 is actually a corrective. It's a corrective to Acts 1.6. So as the apostles are together just before Jesus' ascension, they have this drastic misunderstanding of what's about to take place. And they say there in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin, famous pastor, reformer, has this incredible line about this. He says, There are as many errors in this question as words. Not a great line. I'm sure people have said that about questions I've asked before, too. But there are as many errors in this question as words. What does he mean by that? Well, the word restore assumes that Jesus is building a political or a territorial kingdom. But God's kingdom... God's kingdom is not so much about geography as it is about the perfect rule and reign of God. When you encounter the phrase in the New Testament, the kingdom of God, think first and foremost, not place, not a location. Think the rule of God, the perfect reign of God. Next, asking if the kingdom will be restored to Israel assumes that this will be a national kingdom. But Jesus' gospel, as this book is all about, is for all nations. It's an international, it's really a transnational kingdom. And in ways that will be costly and complicated and expose deep racial prejudices, the gospel is about to explode outside of Israel and to the Gentiles and to all the nations of the earth. And then, asking if this is going to happen at this time, when the disciples ask if it's going to happen at this time, assumes immediacy. But God's kingdom is gradual, As Jesus himself said, not many days before this, it's a mustard seed that begins small and begins insignificant but grows to be something massive. And God's kingdom is already, it's inaugurated, but it's not yet, it's not fully consummated. So as Jesus says, it's not for them, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. And you'd think we'd think perhaps that would be sufficient for the generations of Christians since to stop speculating, to stop being fixated on charts and dates and movies and books and all that kind of stuff about the end times, to keep misinterpreting Revelation the way we tend to. But apparently not. Apparently we're not. We haven't yet learned that fully. But Luke's eschatology, Luke's view of the end times is incredibly straightforward and incredibly clear, and we would do well to adopt it ourselves. What's Luke's vision of the end times? It will happen. It will happen. Christ will come again. Is that not clear and simple? Kind of kind of breaks through the fog of what we get lost in at times. It will happen. Christ will come again. And speaking of which, as Jesus then continues into verse 8, here is what his apostles, here is what we are supposed to care about and are supposed to be preoccupied with in the meantime. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Witnesses to the person and the work of Christ in these ever-expanding circles. That's their calling. That's their commission. It's going to start on Pentecost in Jerusalem the capital of Judaism, the city where God dwelt with his people, where his presence was in the temple. It will expand to Judea, which is the surrounding region primarily occupied by fellow Jews. It will then quickly reach Samaria, a place that is geographically near, but racially and religiously distant. And then it will ultimately go to the ends of the earth. And not only here is this Jesus calling his apostles, it's also the table of contents for the rest of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 is also the table of contents for the rest of the book. The first seven chapters of Acts take place in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11 take place in Judea and Samaria. And then when we reach about the middle of chapter 11, it begins to expand out from there to the ends of the earth. And this book will end rather abruptly, actually, with the apostle Paul in Rome, the capital of the empire, The gospel now no longer contained at the center of Judaism, but at the very center of the first century world. Just a quick word this morning about prescriptive versus descriptive parts of the Bible. It's a tension and a debate that we're going to encounter often, actually, as we make our way through the book of Acts. And that is to say, what is simply description? What is description of things that took place? And what is instead prescription What what is prescription for how we're supposed to do things as followers of Jesus today? And so if you've been around the church for any period of time, if you've ever gone through Acts in particular and looked at Acts 1, you've perhaps heard Acts 1-8 used as a prescriptive model. So in other words, that we are called to be Jesus' witnesses, which is absolutely true, and we start in our Jerusalem, our own immediate context, our own immediate circle, And then we move out to our Judea and our Samaria, our local and national context, both with people who are similar to us and people who are very different from us. And then we move from there to the ends of the earth, into global missions. Anybody familiar with this paradigm? Heard this described in some place before? Willing to admit that today? It's okay. It's okay. It's a safe place here. None of those conclusions are actually wrong at all. We're called to be witnesses to Jesus in all of those places. But, friends, consider this morning, where are you and where am I in Acts 1.8? We are the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. In terms of the known world at that time, in the, in the ears of the apostles who heard Jesus say this, we're actually beyond the ends of the earth. We're beyond the known world in the first century Mediterranean context. Don't put yourself at the center of everything when you read the Bible. Don't try to force every verse in the Bible to be about you or to be immediately applicable to your life. You and I are included in Jesus' words here, and I hope you see that. I hope you're actually awestruck by that. It's just not where we're inclined to put ourselves and see ourselves. We're not at the center. We are those who, through the calling of Jesus upon his apostles, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, through the unstoppable advance of the mission of God, will have the good news reach us, even us, 2,000 years later. We miss so much if we attempt to start with ourselves. We become so arrogant and we become so narrow, we become hyper-nationalistic even at times, when we forget the simple fact that according to the word of God, we are the ends of the earth. So as we start this series, be humbled by that. Be awestruck by that. See the story that you, solely by the mercy and the might of God, have been swept up into. A couple years ago, Jeff Bullock wrote the lyrics to a song called King of Kings. And there's this great line in verse 4 of that song that goes like this. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel and shall not faint. It surely won't. It surely won't, and for 2,000 years now, it has not. Jesus has built his church, and as he promised, the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. Because this calling, because this gospel of the kingdom has gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, millions upon millions of men and women like you and me have been rescued from the judgment and condemnation and futility of sin and death and hell. Thanks be to God. Church, open your eyes as we begin this series to the the story you are part of, to what we get to give our lives to. I know it's hard. I know there are easier things than following Jesus, but there is nothing more worthwhile. There is nothing bigger. There is nothing more historic. There is nothing more eternal that you can possibly be a part of than what you become part of when you are in Christ. And when you read Acts 1.8, when you read this commission from Jesus in light of the last 2,000 years, let it forever convince you that truly nothing will stop the advance of the gospel. Nothing will hinder the kingdom of God. It has reached the end of the earth. It will reach the end of the earth. It will reach more desperate people like you and me. So there's preparation, there's calling, and then third and finally, there's more preparation. After his ascension, the apostles return to Jerusalem, and they wait. They wait for 10 days. It's a moment of preparation. It's a moment for them to catch their breath before, as we might say, all heaven breaks loose, which we'll get to next week in Acts 2. But notice... You, catch, you picked up on that plan words. It took you a little while, but yeah, you're there. Okay, all heaven breaks loose. Okay, Notice, though, the, the apostles are not passive in their waiting. They're not passive in their waiting. Together with the other disciples, which includes many women, Jesus' mother Mary, Jesus' brothers, they devote themselves to prayer. Now, this is a unique moment. Again, back to the prescriptive-descriptive thing. This is a unique moment. It's a short pause before the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus' followers. So there is no 10-day waiting period for you and me before we get to participate in the mission of God. You and I don't become Christians and then say, okay, go hang out somewhere for 10 days, and then you can now be part of this thing. Nonetheless, as Pastor Steve shared last week on Network Sunday, followers of Jesus are those who devote themselves to prayer. Prayer for God to keep fulfilling his promise. Prayer for Jesus to be known. Prayer for the Holy Spirit to empower us and to establish the work of our hands. Prayer that the church would continue to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Recounting the fate of Judas Iscariot, Luke also tells us how the remaining 11 apostles go about finding a replacement for him. Peter stands up and he quotes two psalms. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, in ways that would admittedly not be a very natural interpretation of those texts. If you go back and read Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, it is not immediately obvious that that applies to replacing an apostle of Jesus. But remember, Peter just heard Jesus interpret the entire Old Testament in light of himself, pointing to himself. And so no doubt Peter is given some insights, not to mention authority as an apostle that you and I don't have. So we can trust his word. It's reliable. Replacing an apostle actually is a a one-time thing. It's actually not because Judas died. It's because of his betrayal. It's because of his desertion. So in Acts chapter 12, when we get there, when the apostle James is martyred, when he's killed, they don't replace him. They don't find a twelfth again. They replace Judas Iscariot because there's a real significance to the number twelve. It shows this immense continuity that there is between Israel and the church. Just as there were 12 tribes of Israel, there are also 12 apostles that are chosen by Jesus. And in the consummation of all things, when Jesus comes again, when he makes all things new, we read in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, has 12 gates and 12 foundations. And on each of those 12 gates is written one of the names of the tribes of Israel, and on each of those 12 foundations is written one of the names of the 12 apostles. Judas, because of his betrayal, is not one of those names. But there needs to be a 12th name. And so two candidates are put forward, Joseph and Matthias. I feel bad for Joseph because he has like three names mentioned here, and then it's not him. (laughs) But he has three names, Joseph and Matthias, As we read, though, the criteria here is that they are all witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They've been among Jesus' followers from John's baptism of Jesus until the ascension. And church tradition will tell us, it's not in Scripture itself, but church tradition tells us that both Joseph and Matthias were among the 70. When we read in the Gospel accounts that there are 70 disciples that Jesus sends out at different times, both of these men were among the 70 But just as Jesus chose the original 12, Jesus must be the one to choose Judas' replacement. And so the apostles pray, Jesus, you are the knower of hearts. You know hearts. Which one of these two have you chosen? And they cast lots, and the lot falls to Matthias. This is actually the last time in all of Scripture that lots are cast. There are no other examples in the New Testament after the day of Pentecost where Lots are cast. Now we're not told for sure, but that's almost certainly because once the Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit, there's no longer a need. Who needs lots? Who needs to cast lots when you have the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside you? Despite the fact that certainly there are moments in my life and probably in yours where casting lots would make things a lot easier, it is infinitely better to have God Himself. It is infinitely better. The Spirit leads and guides us not just in these important decision-making moments of our lives. The Spirit leads us and guides us in every moment of our lives because the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit. Chapter 1 then ends in the waiting, in the preparation. If it felt kind of like an odd stopping point, it, it is. It's a pregnant moment. Jesus has ascended, but the Spirit has not yet come. And so between today and next Sunday, when we explore Acts chapter 2 together, I would invite you to use this week to ask God to prepare you. To ask God to prepare you. To prepare you for what he has for you this year. We're only about a month into a new year. To ask him to prepare you for participation in the life of this church as we together participate in the mission of God, in this gospel that has been passed down to us and is now our time and our turn to see advanced in the world. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, that is the preparation. I mean, that is the preparation. No other kind of preparation matters until we come to recognize our own desperate need for his salvation, to ask him through his finished work to to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us with God the Father. So we ask him to empower us with his spirit. And so if that's you, if you're here today, if you're listening today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would implore you, be reconciled to God through him. All the other kinds of preparation, all the other kinds of things that Christians talk about, prescriptions that we make for how to live your life and be good and moral people, none of that matters if you've forsaken the preparation of trusting in the finished work of Christ. That is the preparation. If you have put your faith in Jesus you already have the Holy Spirit. And so this week is not your version of a 10-day waiting period. I'm not saying to you, go sit off on the sideline for 10 days and wait. But, but, there are key moments in our lives where we continue to prepare to be sent back out into the mission of God, to participate in it in maybe a new way or with fresh eyes. And so if the gospel has become in any way wrote to you, if church, if the church, established by Jesus himself, has become ordinary and commonplace. If the mission of God has lost its flavor and its vitality, then ask God the Spirit to renew you, to revive you. Preach to your own soul the words of the Apostle Paul, where he writes, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you. This is the story, friends, that we are caught up in. The Spirit of God has empowered Jesus' church to advance God's mission. So because you have been saved through God's mission, because you are united with Jesus and his church, because the very Spirit of God dwells in you, lift your heads and rejoice today. Until Christ comes again, nothing will stop this gospel of the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. us. Oh, Lord, our God, you have given to us this glorious gospel of our risen Master and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pause and we remember today how glorious that gospel is and how it was your plan and your work from before the foundation of the world, how Acts is not the beginning, but only the next chapter of work that you have done from eternity past. We ask, Father, that you would, as we joyfully have received this good news for ourselves, that we would also be those who share it with others. Prepare us, renew us again by your spirit so that as the Apostle Paul writes, that we might be those who joyfully share it with others because it is solely by the grace of God we are what we are. Thank you for what you have caught us up into. Thank you that you have established your church by your spirit. Thank you that your mission now has a church. Your mission has sent a people from all nations into the world, and that we get to be part of that. As we come to your table today, give us great joy in the finished work that you have accomplished on our behalf. We pray all that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.